The following is a sermon from Gila Valley Baptist Church, and we pray this message strengthens your relationship with our Lord and Savior. We're located in Gila, New Mexico, and to learn more about our ministry or how to support our ministry, please visit GilaValley.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Man, it is good to see your smiling face here this morning. And uh, I would also affirm, as Lee said, it's good to be in the house of the Lord and see there to be light. You know, as we traveled in late yesterday afternoon into the Silver City area and then on into Gila this morning, you know, there's a newness and freshness about everything about because we've had some moisture across the land. So we've got some green that's up and there's a crisp freshness in the air and you know what just reminds me of the goodness of God? It reminds me when I see that good grass that there's life. You know, because in New Mexico, the arid desert region that we are, there's a whole lot of times we see brown. There's a whole lot of times that we see a lot of wind and dirt and dust flying around. And it's good to be able to recognize when we see that grass out there feeding the cattle across the hills, but to recognize that there's life. And you know what? I'm looking across this morning in this church, and I'm thankful, and my heart is full because I see some life. And not that you haven't been alive. I don't want to in any way insinuate that. But I do want you to know that it's good to be in the house of the Lord and recognize a fresh, new life. And I thank God for bringing Amanda and Nathan here and pray that uh, He continues to use them. But... I'm thankful for you guys. You have been our church family for so many years. We love you. We thank you for all the way that you have prayed for us and blessed us just to know you and have that relationship with you. And I am excited to be here with you this morning. It's good to see all the children. You see some of your other folks, you're just getting old. I mean, you're like me. But to see the kids, I mean, we've got Jasper back there running the soundboard and everything else. Man, serving in the church already. When I see those coming up to take the offering and recognizing, willing to serve once again, I just love that because you see the church looking around and seeing these young people, they're not the church of tomorrow. They're the church of right now. They're the church of today. They're a church alongside of you and me as we continue to further the gospel and to advance the kingdom of God. I thank Anita, whether she knew it or not, I thank her for leading this morning and singing Worthy of Worship and our last song talking about the goodness and greatness of God. You see, it is my privilege and joy to serve you today because our God is great and He is worthy of our worship. Even if none of you were here this morning, I can't think of a better place that I'd rather be than in God's house because He is worthy of my worship. And we don't have to just be in a church uh, sanctuary to worship. But my friends, when it talks about gathering together and assembling together the saints, the coming together according to Hebrews 10, 25, you know, not to forsake that assembling, but coming together and encouraging one another and stirring up one another to good deeds. That's what I am here to do, is to stir you up to good deeds, to encourage you, and to worship Almighty God. With you. 
and I'm thankful that you took the time today to come, even though you knew I was going to be preaching. So <laughs> Nathan had asked me uh, a couple of months ago, he said, you know, the church is doing well, and, and, and we're looking at being able to see and sense God's leadership as maybe bringing along some more deacons. And uh, he said, would you mind coming and just preaching about deacon qualifications? And I said, absolutely, I'd be more than happy to come and, and to look at God's Word and to be able to expose the truths thereof. And we're going to take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 here in just a few moments. Now, if we were to look at the beginning part of that chapter in verses 1 through 7, it speaks about elders. And elders, as what we recognize them, is the pastor-shepherd. It is that one, of course, as it speaks of in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 3, also calls a bishop. But we know that to be the pastor, that under-shepherd of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which Nathan holds that position for Gila Valley Baptist Church right now. But then there's a second group of leaders that we see in this passage beginning in verse 8 and following along through verse 13, and that is the leadership of the deacon. And so this morning, before we begin, I want you to, to recognize that anytime you're in servant leadership, it's much difficult. It's really difficult to be in that position. And I feel for many of our pastors and, and deacons and those that are serving the churches in today's society, because it's difficult. It may not be quite as difficult is in 1914 when Sir Ernest Shackleton prepared for his historic Antarctic journey. You see, as he was going to push through, as he was going to look and adventure and, and be able to found Antarctica, he placed a newspaper ad that read something like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, Constant danger, safe return, doubtful, <laughs> honor and recognition in case of success. You know, there's a whole lot of truth to that in leadership in the church. As much as we would like to say that it is all wonderful being a pastor and a deacon of a church, that's not always the case. There's hardships, there's difficulties. But our success is not going to be from the applause of men. Our success is going to be from the applause from heaven, from our Savior Jesus. As we enter into our place in heaven as those who have served well, and he says, well done, thy good and faithful servant. There were 28 men that responded to that newspaper ad. 28 men that were willing to step out and become leaders for that Antarctic journey with Ernest Shackelford. And all 28 returned home. But they experienced the bitter cold. They experienced the hunger. They experienced the inner fighting during that time. They experienced all of these brutal experiences that are spoken of here. But you know, they knew that leadership wouldn't be easy. It wasn't easy for those 28 men and my friends as deacons. It won't be easy for you as well. We've never been promised that it was easy to serve and easy to ultimately lead. But I want to share with you this morning as we dive into 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
Because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we experience what the Apostle Paul, who knew all about hardships, remember? Go back and look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and you'll see some of the hardships that he faced. But when we recognize that the Apostle Paul was writing to his young protege, Timothy, who was an elder or pastor at the church of Ephesus, and Paul writing from Macedonia sometime between 63 and 67 A.D., was writing to this young pastor, and he was enforcing some things that were very important, and that being doctrinal purity, making sure they were staying wayward and pure to the doctrines of the living God, but also the right way to worship. You know, there's a right way and a wrong way to worship, and he was giving him some advice and wisdom on what that looked like. But there's another thing that we see, and that was leadership qualifications and character that ought to be demonstrated by those who lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we're going to focus on today. And I would like to take this time to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 as we read through verse 13. Follow along with me, if you will, in your copy of God's Word. I'll be reading out the New American Standard as the Apostle Paul writes these words. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be first tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer this morning as we ask His guidance, direction, and wisdom as we take a look at His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank You for the privilege of being here Thank you, Father God, that you are the one and only true God who is worthy of our time, our reverence, our worship. God, thank you for loving us beyond even compare. That you were loving us so much that you demonstrated that love for us that while we were yet sinners, you sent your one and only Son to die on the cross so that we may have life abundant and life eternal. And God, as we take a look this morning at the qualifications of leaders called deacons. God, I just pray that you would give us great wisdom and insight. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to follow these truths and apply these biblical principles in our own life because although they are focused on deacons, they are absolutely conditions and qualifications and characteristics that we as followers of Jesus Christ ought to imitate and ought to live out in our daily lives for your glory. So God, thank you for this today. I pray that you would just bless our time together. And Lord, as always, if there is one person that may be here today that does not know Jesus as Savior and Lord of their life, may today be the day of salvation. And may they come to the truth and understanding of your love for them and for the way that we might have life eternal. And that is through confession of our sins, repentance from those sins, and placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross and His resurrection. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask and pray. 
Amen. Amen. Man, there's a whole lot of stuff in this passage this morning, and so, you know, if you want to be here for a couple of hours before we get to eat, you know, we'll just hang in there tight. We'll try to get through this. If you'll listen fast, I'll speak a little faster. But uh, this morning, I'm going to take a look and, and give you an understanding of what we're speaking about. The word deacon in the Greek actually comes from the word diakonos, which literally in the Greek means to stir up the dust. You know, I kind of think about out there as a cowboy riding a horse across the plains and stirring up dust. But what that is in reference to is work. It is in reference to a servant. It is in reference in stirring up the dust when we think about one that is willing to serve. And so when we think about deacons, keep in this back of your mind foremost that a deacon is one who serves. Now, we don't know, especially in Acts chapter 6, as Lee so eloquently read a few moments ago, we don't know whether that was literally the first time that deacons were necessarily on the scene, but we do know one thing. There were those in Acts chapter 6 that they set apart for service. We know that they were set apart for the work that was taking place in the church of that day. And so when we think about the word servant and the word deacon, I want us to think about two quick things. Number one, we want to first and foremost think about that a deacon is about practice. It's about functionality. It's about serving. If you are chosen as a leader position as a deacon in this church or any other church, then you must recognize that it is more about the function of serving others, as we see in Acts chapter 6. But there's a second thing as well, and that is it is a position. It is an office of leadership. Now, there have been some churches in the past that look at this deacon as an office as kind of a board of those who would provide wisdom and advice, and although they do oftentimes. But if we lose sight and just consider the deacon as a place of office or position of status, then we lose the biblical New Testament reference and understanding that it is primary a position of serving. When we think about the position in office, we recognize that only two times in the New Testament is it spoken of as being an office, a place, a position. And that is in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8 as we recognize this morning. And then also in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, as Paul once again is referencing this position of deacon. So let's jump in this morning and recognize that we're going to be seeing two basic things. And I know there's a whole lot of meat here, so let's begin to strip that meat off the bone and, uh, and, and get full from God's Word this morning. First and foremost, we're going to talk about the qualifications of deacon. The qualifications of deacon found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, I believe that we can basically put these into three different categories. Now, as oftentimes, as we look at Scripture, we're not going to be able to see these perfectly fit, but somewhat fit within three categories. Number one, we're going to look at the personal areas or qualifications in which a deacon is to be looked at conditionally. The qualifications for that individual to lead and serve in a church. Number one, they are to be a man of dignity. 
In other words, in the NIV, it says worthy of respect. Someone that is in good standing. Someone that we would consider honest, moral, upright, righteous, holy, good, and other things that when we think about worthy of respect. Who do you think of when you think about someone that is worthy of respect? Maybe it's someone that you know in your family. Maybe it's someone that you know in the community. Maybe it's someone that you can look back on the pages of Scripture. I think about Job. Oh my goodness. We could just carry on a whole sermon on Job. But Job, when he was there, of course being the first Old Testament book, if we go back and look at chronological order, we see that he was a righteous man according to chapter 1. How do we know he's righteous? Because God calls him righteous. Now that doesn't mean he's perfect. And we're going to see throughout this lesson today, we want to make sure that we don't put undue standards on deacons in which they must live to perfection. Okay? We're looking at that righteous mean that he was a good man. And according to God's standard, he lived a moral, upright life. And so I think about Job when Satan was looking for somebody to tempt Man, the Lord said, hey, what about that guy over there? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be tempted. I don't want to be led astray. I don't want to have all the, all the demise and destruction and trials that Job faced. But bear with me for just a minute. Wouldn't you love for you to hear the voice of God saying, what about my man over here? What about my woman over here? They're the ones that stand righteous. I tell you what, it just makes me have chills to think that the God who created me in His image would have those kind of words to say about me. When we think about that, a man that is in a place of leading as a deacon and serving as a deacon, they must be a man that is a man of dignity. A man that is going to be a person of respect. But there's a second thing this morning. And that is that he need not be a, a man that's double-tongued. That, that speaks of a forked tongue. That speaks of a man that speaks truth. It speaks of a man that speaks honestly when he opens his mouth. He's not a man that would gossip. He's not an individual who would slander. He is an individual who would speak Truth. Now, I want you to quickly turn over this morning. I told you that we're going to have to, to listen quick, speak quick to get through these. But Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to see something. Because there's a whole bunch of you sitting here today saying, well, I ain't going to be a deacon, so I'm not going to worry about this. Well, I want you to listen up. Because God's Word is not exclusive just for deacons. This Word of God that the Apostle Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 4 is also speaking about all of you as men and women of the body of Christ. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, in chapters 1 through 3, he's already given the theological status. He's already given them the doctrinal issues. And then we find over in verses in chapter 4 through 6, he's speaking about the practical peace, how this is supposed to be lived out. Matter of fact, in chapter 4, verse 1, he already speaks about, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. In other words, when you are a child of God, 
You have come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. Your life ought to change. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Your life ought to look differently than what it did before. So follow along with me here. In verse 17 it says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Now let me give you some clarification. Gentiles in this sense means pagan. Those that are not truly uh, in a relationship rightly with Jesus Christ. And he said that because you are in the Lord, you don't need to act like pagans. You don't need to act like hypocrites. You don't need to act like the Gentiles. So what does he say? He begins to give them some advice on some things they need to take off and then some things they need to put on. I want us to see in verse 25 one of the things that he begins with. He says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood. In other words, quit lying. Now that you're a child of God, now that you are a follower of Christ, now that you're a new creation, now that you're a man or woman of God, quit lying. But he also goes on to say that speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now I'm not going to go into all the things today, but I believe that the Apostle Paul speaks a whole lot about our mouth. And it's not just about speaking truthful. It's about speaking in a kind manner. If you follow along that in Ephesians chapter 4 over in verses 32, and, and you'll recognize that it says, Be kind one to another, forgiving each other just as Christ also has forgiven you. I, I'm not asking for an amen this morning. I don't need an amen. But I'm here to tell you that God wants believers to close their mouths if they do not honor Him. He wants us to have a filtered mouth. One that speaks truth and also one that speaks in kindness and one that speaks with sensitivity and love and compassion and concern for others. And we learned in Sunday school this morning that love is something that we need to do because God so loved us. One way that we can love is how we speak to one another. We need to be men and women that have a filtered mouth. And it's the Holy Spirit who filters our mouth in a way that would bring honor and glory to Him. And so a man who would be in a leadership position as a deacon must be truthful, must be one that has a tamed tongue. And we know how difficult that is according to James in James chapter 3. And that tamed tongue, that's a difficult thing. Many of us who have rode horses for all of our lives and recognize men bridling that horse that is rank, it's a tough thing to do, but that's what it speaks about. Not only that, but we also see not addicted to much wine. As we go back and look in earlier in that chapter, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll also recognize this was the same thing for elders, or those that were shepherds, bishops, overseers. It is that we are to control one's intake. Now, I noticed that, well, I have it down there. I noticed that one of your discipleship questions for tonight's study was what traditions do we may have as we look at the, uh, the office and the qualifications of deacons? What traditions may begin to kind of paint where we stand in our understanding of qualifications? And this is one of those areas because when I was growing up, I heard a whole lot about the fact that Jesus never drank any alcoholic beverage. Well, we're foolish to think about that because, number one, 
In that day and time, immediately upon the pulling and crushing of grapes, there was an immediate transformation of fermentation that took place. Now, some of you out there this morning, you're like, oh, good, this is good stuff. You know, I can drink. I can go out and do my own thing. That's not what I'm saying. When you look back through the Old Testament, there's three words that speak about alcoholic beverage. There's two words that speak about that in the New Testament. And what I see, traditionally speaking, is that we lean to whatever makes us feel good. You know, I look at it as if everybody just wouldn't drink, we wouldn't have the problem of overindulgence, would we? You know, so my opinion is it'd be real easy to say, just be teetotalers. But you know what? Being teetotalers is not in alignment with what God's Word teaches. Because God's Word is not speaking about the absolute eradication of any alcoholic beverage. It says that the abuse of any alcoholic beverage is the issue. So what we must go back and look at is that the Apostle Paul is saying one that's going to be in a leadership position must control and moderate any alcoholic beverage that would ultimately bring him to a place of being intoxicated and ultimately bring him to a place that would cause him to be drunk. Now, being drunk is a sin. And I know some of you out there this morning, you're already getting a little antsy because of the way I'm bringing this out. But let me just share with you. I think there's two things that we can quickly look at. Number one is that we can look at those who are for drinking alcoholic beverage. You're going to try to finagle it in every way where you say, but the Bible says just don't be drunk. I can drink. I can do whatever I want to. Really? That's not what Romans chapter 14 says. Romans chapter 14 talks about having a principle of conscience. Romans chapter 14 says that we need to be mindful of those around us that may ultimately have an issue or a possibility of having an addiction of alcohol. And how do you know, man, woman, boy, or girl, whether the person that you're around is going to have the possibility of an addiction to an alcoholic beverage? So you need to have a principle of conscience that although is, as Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about meats offered to idols, there wasn't anything wrong with that meat. There was something wrong with the motive of eating that meat when it had already been offered to idols. And when we think about wine, wine is just like the internet. Wine is, there is nothing good nor bad in the, internet, or in the, in the wine. From the moment that the grapes are crushed, fermentation begins to take place, and it is immediately an intoxicating drink. There's new wine, there's old wine, there's aged wine, and then there's strong drink. And my friends, you need to avoid strong drink in any, in any shape, form, or fashion because that, throughout Scripture, is absolutely condemned for its effect upon our lives in the way that it would intoxicate us. Moving forward today, so you're saying, well, do we drink or not? That's a matter of conscience. That's a matter of conscience as you deal with the Lord. But I'm going to share with you one thing. I think that you, if you're going to be in a leadership role, you need to think long and hard about the way that your example leads to the way other people view the very Scripture. Think about your example and the way that you're living. Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. 
So you need to also consider that. You need to think about the way that it would impact others around you. Fourthly is that not of sordid gain, not fond of sordid gain. Don't be one who is ultimately pursuing dishonest gain. In other words, for all of you that, that, are, uh, uh, that, that kind of take of the alcohol, you can sit back for a minute because we probably got a bunch of cheaters in here too. <laughs> probably got a whole bunch of cheaters in here that on taxes that would come to a place and they would try to finagle any way they can because you know the government's crooked so we're going to steal from them every way we can. But we've got to be able to look Hey, if we're going to take some of the Bible, we've got to take all of the Bible, right? So we need to be men and women that would understand that money, just as the Internet, is neither good nor bad, but we can use it for good or evil. talks about over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you'll turn quickly with me there this morning, it says in verse, in verse 7, Paul is writing, he says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now listen carefully. It's kind of like you're speaking to a child that's very fidgety. Listen. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's the love of money. It's in that position in which we would as the rich young ruler begin to say yes I've followed commands, I've done all that but I'm really not willing to get rid of my money because that is my focus. That's where I find my longing and comfort and my enjoyment. Now, I'm not going to share with you this morning that you got to live out there like a pious person that doesn't have a home and doesn't have a vehicle. That's not what it's speaking of. But when money begins to be your focus, when it begins to be the priority of your life, you know what Jesus said. We cannot serve God and mammon, or in other words, wealth, money. Those possessions. We can't serve two gods. So which one are you going to choose this morning? The one that ultimately provides maybe riches in this life or one who came to lay his riches down at the foot of the cross so that he would die for you and bury, be buried for you and be raised again on the third day to give you life. Something that you cannot attain in and of yourself. That's the one I want to lay my life down. When we think about that, Billy Graham made the statement about character because these are all about character. Billy Graham said this, when wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. And when character is lost, all is lost. When we think about that, we must realize that character is where it stands or falls. Men and women, remember, as a child of the living God, we have a responsibility as Christ ambassadors to live in a way with character and integrity. When my papa died in an early age, in early 60s, there were those that traveled across seven miles following him to his resting place in the Collinsville Cemetery. Why? Because he was a man of character. 
They didn't have a lot of money. He didn't have a whole lot of education. He didn't have anything that the world would say builds a status. But you know what he had? He was a man worthy of respect. He was a man that was not focused on material gain. And he was a man that was truly one that was truthful and sincere and honest and loving. And there were people that recognized that and saw his love and his ability to serve others. And that's why they were there to pay the respects to a man. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. But he was a man that exemplified these type of characteristics in his life. I want us to move on quickly this morning and look at a couple of more things. And that is the spiritual or social qualifications. And that is, when we think about it in verses 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul writes a few things that are important for those that are leaders or going to be leaders of the New Testament church in the first century, as well as transcending all the way into this day. He says, first and foremost, you need to be one who holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, you need to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. There were false teachers that were all around. And there were those that tried to cause them to stray from the truth of the gospel message. Remember in Galatia, where there were those that had received the word of God, the gospel message that brought about salvation. And then what they do? When false teachers came in, they, they quickly turned and turned away from the only true gospel. Now, we know that it speaks about the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the faith. That is something according that we would see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, as well as other scriptures that I have up here for you this morning. But I want to quickly look at that one. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes once again. He said, as he had written those at Corinth, he said, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You see, the gospel is really a mystery because it is about God who in his love for mankind sent his one and only son to the cross. I don't know how many of you have children here this morning. Well, I probably do. <laughs> How many of you would be willing to send your one and only son to the cross to pay for the penalty of other people's sins? How many of you would be willing to do that to bring about a wall that was placed between Jew and Gentile, male and female, bond and are, are free and, and bonded by slavery, to bring them together according to Ephesians chapter 3 by the good news of salvation? Not many of us would. But that's the mystery of God and it's the mystery of the gospel that is brought about so that we might experience life-giving forgiveness. And they are to do this with a clear conscience. In other words, not just believing the Scripture, but living it out. Actually living out. I like the way Fred McDonald said, he said, we as believers ought to be a living walkie-talkie. You know? Living it out talking and living it out walking. It ought to be the way that we live our lives. But secondly, it also speaks about that they must be tested. Men that are in a position to be leaders ought to be tested. 
Now, I know that when I became a deacon at 25 years old, my aunt was concerned about this. And she was concerned about all the things that maybe I hadn't experienced in my life up until that time. Why? She wanted me to be tested and proved. i give you a quick example of that. This word, tested, means a testing that ultimately comes to an approval so that you might be prepared. For many of you that are in here this morning that play sports, you have to go and get a physical. Why? They want to know whether you're tested that you're in a position to where ultimately you're fit to be able to have sports. See these things I got on my head? I went to go get a CDL license, and I've had a CDL license forever. And so I went, and I forgot these at home. And so I got my physical, got everything kind of going, and they placed me up there to where there was an eye chart at the back. And I could read the E. The E was good. <laughs> I just spouted it right off quick. E. Yeah. She said, go down to the lowest one that you can see. I said, all right, I'm going to hedge my bet on this one. I'm going about four. And man, I just read across there real good. And then she said, now, close one of your eyes. Take the right eye, close it. And so now read. And so I went, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. A, B, C, D, E, F, D, you know, whatever. And then she said, now close the left eye. Boom. Uh-oh. E. <laughs> I couldn't see. That's when you get old, people. Young, young people, that's when, you know, it really hits and you go, oh, crud. I'm not going to pass this test. But when it really hits you is when you know you just spent $100 for the test. <laughs> and I walked in and she said, hey, she said, I can't pass you. You're in great physical condition, but you can't see out of that one eye. I kind of want to say, well, pluck it out. That way I'm going to But the fact of the matter is, is that the test was given so that I could be approved for the license. And I had to rush home real quick and get some glasses so I could see, and I still couldn't see real good. That's why I have these new ones that look awful sharp and classic. You know, you got to do all you can when you get old, right? The fact of the matter is, is that men... You must be approved and tested. You must be in a position to where you've really shown that you've got some character and integrity in a place that you would be willing and ready to stand in a position of leadership. And then it says that they must be above reproach. As we take a look in these, in these following things, there it says, if they serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. And so when we think about that, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they're perfect. It means that they're not suspicious. It means they've got the type of character to where most of you could say, I trust that individual. Maybe not with my life, but I trust him. I trust him. Men, are you that man? Even if you're not going to be a deacon for this church, you ought to be a man that people in the community could say, I trust that guy. If you were put on a, a uh, court panel, would they say, I would think that he is innocent. That's the type of life that you need to live as a follower of Christ. Whether you're in a leadership position or not, do you stand the test of public opinion? Now we know in this world that we live in, public opinion is horrible, isn't it? Why? Because public opinion lies. But God knows the truth. 
So my friends, today it's not just about passing the test of public opinion. It's the passing of the test of a Savior who knows you all too well because he died for you. Can you stand that test? One must lead and serve others by demonstrating a love for God, a soundness in his word, and spiritual maturity. And then we're going to close with this last part. And you say, man, it's about time I'm getting hungry. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's going to take just a few more minutes. <laughs> I'm not saying I've got long-winded since I left, but long-winded just to make sure I've got the clarity. We need to understand this last piece. And that comes from a look at the family qualifications in verses 11 and 12. We're going to see that first and foremost, we see that women likewise, now if you're reading the New International Version this morning, you're seeing that the wives of the deacons is the way that it looks in your particular copy this morning. And that is true. That is the way that it has been translated according to the New International Version. Let me give you quickly the... I, uh, the, the thought on this when it speaks about women. Long time in Baptist churches across our land, we've said, absolutely, there are no women deacons. Well, we would know that that would be false according to Scripture as a whole because Phoebe in Romans chapter 16 was called a deaconess, okay? But we're not saying that there were no deacons in the manner of servanthood, okay? What we're saying is, traditionally and historically in the past, is that there's no woman that has been in the office or position of a deacon. Now, I'm not going to lie to you this morning and tell you that we don't have not only other denominations that have women deacons, and even in some of our Baptist churches across Southern Baptist life, in 43,000 churches, that there are not some churches that have decided to move that way. We don't have women pastors in any of our churches, but we have women that are serving in the role of deacon. But let me just share with you my thoughts according to Scripture here today in this. And number one, as we see in the New American Standard, it says women must likewise. Speaking about those in which would serve, but are they the wives of the deacon? Or are they just women that would rise up and be in a place of service? I think according to what is given in the context, I believe that it moves more easily with being the wives of the deacon. Why do I say that? It's because when we look at verse, uh, in verse 10, it is already speaking about deacons. Then when we find in verse 12, once again, it goes back to deacons. It's sandwiched in between. I believe, according to my study, I believe according to what I have went through, that when it's speaking about women here, it is those women, wives of the deacons, that are ultimately in a position of serving in that role. Now, you can argue with me, and, and, and that would be fine. I don't have the monopoly on Scripture. I am filled with the Holy Spirit of God just as you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. But the way that I interpret this, according to my study, is that it is ultimately a wife of the, um, the, the deacon. Why? Is because if we look at the word gune, which is in the Greek, it is speaking that it could be either wife or women, and we know that there were women who served, but because the context 
I believe these were wives of the deacons that were already in service, and they were living out that role of servant wives, living out that role of service to the community. If we go back and look in Acts chapter 6, there were those that were needing to have aid or assistance. You know who they were? Women. In accordance with study, if it were the women who were deacons that would ultimately serve the other women, then why in Acts chapter 6 were there no women that were raised to that position or office? I believe, according to this, it is speaking about the wives of those deacons. But let's move on. As I said, I'm not going to have the monopoly on interpretation, but it also says here that how they're to act we can look and see that much of the way that the men are to act, so are the women. Regardless of whether it's speaking about women in general or wives of the deacons. Guys, let's take a look. They're to be worthy of respect. They ought to be in dignified individuals. They ought to be people that are not malicious gossips. Once again, watching our mouths according to the filter of the Holy Spirit. Once again, as we take a look, they're to be temperate, not up and down and uncontrollable and off the chart, and faithful in all things. And then we come to a place of when we see the last thing. Well, it kind of comes together, but it's, it's the last thing in which we see, and that is that deacons must be the husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Man, oh man, oh man. This is what this is what you got me here for, Nathan. This is what everybody sits there and waits and says, man, does he have the answer? Because this is a long-touted, long debate from the beginning of the ride. The fact of the matter is, is that the literal meaning to be the husband of one wife is a one-woman man. It's a one-woman kind of man. So what does that mean, one-woman kind of man? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to I'm going to share with you what it looks like according to Scripture and the views and debates according to scholars that are a whole lot smarter than me because they know a whole lot more Greek than, one my, than my one semester. But let me dive in, and let me give you these thoughts quickly. Number one is that there were those that believed and have believed and continue to believe that to be a deacon or to be an elder, that and also in Titus chapter 2, that you must be married. You can't be single. But the fact of the matter is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you've done any kind of study from the Apostle Paul, you recognize that he was already talking about those that were married and that they could be married and still serve God. And so that would debunk that type of myth that would bring about a level of not being able to serve. And if you go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, you see that even the Apostle Paul was single. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to speak out of both sides of the mouth and say it's okay for you to serve as a married person, but I'm really the only one that has it right because I'm single. So the piece of information here, that can't be true. Or Paul, the apostle, the leader, would not be in a position 
that he would be saying that you must be married to be able to serve as a deacon. The second piece is that it is against polygamy. In other words, multiple marriages. And that was, of course, a part of that culture of the day. But it was so far removed from the truth of the Christian culture. He wouldn't have had to deal with leadership that would be in multiple marriages. That's not an issue that he would have to deal with on a regular basis. Maybe a case-by-case basis, but not something that he would have to deal with in a regular practice of leadership is that they would be married to multiple women in the Christian community. Thirdly, is that it excludes remarriage after a spouse dies. Some say that it excludes those remarrying after a spouse has died. Well, once again, I believe that we can find from the pages of Scripture that's not true. Because over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, if you want to quickly turn there, since it's only one page, and I'm not going to belabor the point, is he's talking about younger widows there. And he says, therefore, I want younger widows to what? Get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for approach. In other words, if you can't be a woman who is a widow or a man who is a widower and not be able to function in being able to withstand immorality, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, then you need to be in a position or a state of married so that you can serve God and so that you can live out your life as a respectable um, and accountable uh, follower of Christ. So I, I believe that, once again, Scripture debunks that. And then we have the last two that kind of come down into one piece. Some see this is a prohibition of a divorced man. And some see this as referring to a man's faithfulness to his own life. Let me be as, as, as careful as I can. When we take a look at this passage of Scripture, we want to jump quickly to what we like, okay? We want to jump quickly to what feels right. I personally, when we look at that, it would be great if there were no divorces that took place. That's not what Jesus would desire was divorce, according to Matthew chapter 19. He thought and believed that marriage was to be a commitment for life. But we must also recognize that there were those that were divorced. So how is Paul handling the issue of divorce? Well, I think that we can be clear in saying this. If Paul wanted to be perfectly clear that a divorced man cannot serve in any capacity as a leader, he would have used the word apollo, and that would reference the fact of a divorced man that could not serve in any way. Okay? It is the leading and understanding that if he used that word, he would exclude any man that would ever be divorced whether it was prior to his conversion, whether it was during his conversion, or whether it was post his conversion, it would eliminate that type of idea whatsoever. But ultimately, if we're going to be true to Scripture, because we know the wording means 
a one-woman man. What it is speaking of is someone that is faithful to the woman in whom they are married to. The fact of the matter is, we would all agree that there are men who are married and have been married for many years that are unfaithful to their spouse. Maybe you could even think of names. I know one in the fertilizer business for many years ago that I can immediately think of that he and his wife lived together for 50 years and they hadn't slept in the same bed for 20 years because they had too much land and too many cattle and too many horses and too much to ultimately give up. So they didn't. But they weren't in a monogamous relationship. They were in a relationship where it was by law marriage. And yet they were unfaithful. And then we can have the man who is absolutely committed to his wife. Who the wife leads, not because of any indiscretion, not because of any adultery that has taken place in the pages of Scripture, which shows and identifies as the only real reason to be in a divorce situation. And that man has loved his wife and has cared for her. And she walks away. My friends, when you're in a position like that, you cannot force a person to remain in marriage. You cannot force a person to remain in that state of being married. So when you look at this, it is ultimately bringing about, and of course it will be debated for years to come, but I would look at this and say, of course we would want to honor and give uh, opportunities for those that are not in, uh, in, in the divorce state. But if they are in the divorce state, does it absolutely keep them from ever being able to serve in that capacity? If there were, we would have a whole lot of guys in our state that would not be pastors and that wouldn't be deacons. Now, are you saying that, Tar, because we have that, that we ought to lower the standard? Not in any way. I just think that we need to make sure that we understand that the Apostle Paul could have made it very clear that there are no individuals that can serve in a state of being divorced in any way. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the issue and where that pastor or, or, or that one that would serve as to where they stand before the Lord and if they still have sin in their life, if they still have an issue that they have not reconciled with the Lord, confessed and brought that to repentance and ultimate forgiveness and cleansing, you don't want that individual as a deacon or, or as a bishop or overseer. So my friends, let me just say that when we look at the qualifications, there's a whole lot of things. And it ultimately brings us down to where we almost have this self-righteousness that says, if we could just get that perfect man, and they'll be able to leave. But the only problem is there's only one perfect man and he's already there. And he's already the leader of the church anyway. And his name is Jesus. So, in our frailty, in our struggle, we need to recognize that we're not the judge and jury. But we ultimately need to be able to look and interpret and, and seek to honor the Lord's Word in the very best that we can. So let me close with this. 
And that is the fact that I high jumped for a long time. I started high jumping when I was little in track. And there was one time, not with my track meet, but with the girls. And they came to the point to where the high jump was set in at, let's say, 4-8. And none of the girls jumped 4-8. What did they do? Did they just say, okay, well, there goes the high jump for today. And they close it up and nobody wins. No. Because nobody could even jump the opening height because the standard was too great. They lowered the standard two inches. And then a couple of the girls jumped it. And then we had some winners that were able to fulfill the obligation of high jump and they won the medals. Why do I say that? Is because if we put the standard that is on all of us, According to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now we know according to Greek that that speaks about mature. Not in the area of being sinless. Only Jesus was sinless. But my friends, if we want people to serve, we also need to recognize that we need to find those that are fitting according to the best understanding that we have according to Scripture. And then we need to encourage and support them to be all that God has created them and gifted them to be. I am all for making sure that we stand strongly and firmly on the, on the truth of Scripture. And I'm not saying that I have all the things put together. But I know one thing. God knows our struggles in our world today. And He knows that we need men and women that will stand up and be men of character and integrity and follow God's heart to be able to lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. So I close with this. When you take a look at that final verse, it says, For those who have served well as deacons. In other words, there's a quality about the way they serve. You're not going to get a whole lot of maybe applause by men, but look at what it says as Paul writes. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith in Christ Jesus. What is he speaking to? He's ultimately speaking to the fact that there are those that will have a good standing between, or for, for, between God and others and that they will have a, an assurance or a confidence in their relationship with Jesus in the way that they serve my friends, when we come to this, we may have been speaking a whole lot about the deacon and those qualifications. But it's ultimately for each one of us as followers of Christ. It's ultimately about that we all have been given a standard to live to righteousness, to live in a way that would honor and please the Lord. So let me urge you and encourage you this morning, whether you're serving in a place of a deacon as we know that many are today and doing a great job, or whether you're a lay leader, or whether you're a, a man or woman that's a follower of Christ today, can I just share with you, begin striving to live in a way that aligns with these type of qualifications. It aligns with these type of, of criteria, if you will, according to the Apostle Paul. And then lastly, begin serving the Lord and others for God's glory not our own. If we're living a life 
that seeks to honor the Lord and please Him in every way. We're going to transform this church. We're going to transform this community. There is going to be a likeness of Jesus everywhere you go. When you begin recognizing that you're living for the Lord Jesus and not for yourself. It's not for your own gain. It's not for your own status. It's not for your own glory. It's for God's glory. And so let's go out and let's do that to the very best of our ability, filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, who enables us to live that way. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer this morning? As I invite Nathan to come forward this morning and just our last time, I want you to still, let's sit stillly before the Lord this morning. Just ask the question. Am I living in a way that God looks upon me and says, that man, that one, is a child of mine and living in a way that I can say is righteous and holy and good. Can I say that this morning? I'm not speaking about imperfections, but I'm speaking about your heart and desire to live for Jesus. And then this morning, if there are those things that are in our life that may not line up, with God's standard, would this morning, would you just come to a place and just be about 1 John 1, 9, who says if we confess our sin, that He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. You see, who wants to cast the first stone against his brother or sister when maybe we have something in our own life that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to deal with? Ask God to cleanse you this morning as you confess that sin and repent of that sin. And ask Him to cleanse you and give you a new start. A new place. And then for all those that are here today, I just pray that you would seek to honor the Lord in everything that you say, think, and do in the day ahead. And lastly, if there be anyone here this morning and does not know Jesus, as Nathan stands before you this morning as your pastor, would you just come and grab him by the hand and say, you know, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I need Jesus, and today I come, and I ask that he would cleanse me of my sin and become Savior of my life, and I began a new walk, a new life in him today. Would you do that today? As we sing, I'd rather have Jesus. Would you do that as we sing?